Senior Chief Petty Officer Phil Anderton is honest, raw, and real, especially about life as a drill instructor in the Navy. We talked about mistakes, we talked about triumph. Phil covers the good, the bad, and the ugly associated with taking recruits from civilian to sailor and the fact that, as he points out, the enemy doesn't care about your gender. This is the Carry the Load Podcast. So Phil, you spent 20 years in, in like a month in the United States Navy. You did all kinds of things. You were the, um, you were a drill instructor, you were uh, a CB, you were on convoy operations specifically. Um, if you could boil down your entire time into a, a sentence, a phrase, a word, how would you boil that experience? That's uh, Todd. Thank you for that question. That I wasn't uh, wasn't anticipating that. I'm not going to throw you a softball. Yeah. Off the bat. Um, I I would say, God, this is going to sound. I I would say the the role, the behind the scenes role that a lot of the military f- uh, fills um, requires just as much hard work, training, and effort. Um, I hate to say this, but like logistics win wars. You know, the supply mm-hmm. people would love to sure. hear that. Um, but. I, I would say very proudly that the, the supporting role a lot of the um, st- staff and other units, other other MOSs, other job titles uh, that we fill, um, you know, to execute the bigger mission. Um, so I was very I was very proud of a lot of the a lot of the behind the scenes that we got to execute because obviously nothing you know as expeditionary construction right nothing we did. Is making is making the news, but uh, I, I know I know what a role it plays, what a big role it plays. So, yeah, I think I think that's a, an interesting aspect. A lot of people think military; they see a war movie, they're always thinking, yeah. you know, infantry. They're always thinking, um, you know, combat. And the reality is that the number of people in combat minimal versus the number of people in support of those people. Yeah is so lopsided in the favor of the support. Um, and so, you know, and, and getting to know you in a short period of time, you're, I mean, you're a, you're a lead from the front guy. You're like a, I mean, you're what we refer to as an alpha. Yeah. And so you being in a support role almost seems a little bit askew. How did you reconcile that with your, you know, with your personality and, and your, uh, your nature? I'm, I'm, the obvious answer is humility. Um, you you got to humble yourself. I mean, I was 18. I was 19. I, tr- I, I tried to go that route. Didn't work out. Wasn't ready. Uh, became a CB, what is essentially a uh, construction engineer, um, a, a, a contractor, a construction worker, if you will. We, have a, we, we, we do a lot of the trades um, when we deploy. I'd have to say I, you, you humble yourself and then you take pride in your mission. You still have a mission. You still... Um, we, we have history and all the support rates, all the, mm-hmm. all the staff and support, they have history. And if you look back, um, though the warfighter is absolutely deserving of uh, the movies and, and, and the accolades and the praise that they get for, for above and beyond, if you will, um, but a lot of other people are, are there to support and their mission doesn't happen without. Um, so I, I, I think humility first, especially that young 18, 19, 20 year old. And then I went to Iraq when I was 20, uh, 19, 20. So I certainly got a taste of it, uh, so I can understand. Um, but then as I promoted and I understood the bigger picture, 
Um, as you said, it's very lopsided and they don't get where they go and they can't do what they do without a lot of people. And most of them know that. I mean, they're, I've served with some fantastic guys that go down range and they know that. Um, they appreciate this, the support. So it's a good team effort. So all this stuff you're, you're talking about here, if you're, if you're to put this into some kind of lesson, I mean, I know how you are with your kids. How do you tell them everything you just kind of, uh, you know, summarize with me? How do you put that in a lesson for your kids or for, or for anybody else that you work with? I mean, I think at, at, at my core, I always go back to hard work pays off. I, I have to go back to hard work pays off because um, th through the advancement cycle, you're advanced by how hard you work, being, being documented, right? An annual review of that where you're given a certain uh, grade, if you will, and then you take tests. Uh, so it's performance-based, it's knowledge-based, and I just, I wasn't the nicest guy. I wasn't... Um, are, are you referring to the drill instructor piece? Well, I'm, in, the just, in, in the Navy in general, okay. hard work pays off. I mean, my, my whole career, um, and, and you'll have your people that are prior vets that'll, everybody's gonna have uh, something negative to say about how the military advances. Everybody, so, somebody always had a bad experience, but mm -hmm. in my experience, generally speaking, the hardest workers advanced. The hardest workers were rewarded. The hardest workers were given better opportunities. It's just what it is. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. And you know, you've got a, a slightly different perspective than I do because that was one of the reasons I got out. Um, and I, I don't disagree with you in hindsight, but at the time, what I was I, and maybe I used a justification to get out because I was watching people advance. It was a matter of if you don't screw up, you're gonna move to the next uh, level, certainly at the officer ranks. For context, yeah, officer enlisted. Yes. Um, I, I would tend to agree with you more on the officer side, mm -hmm. even with my 20 years. I would tend to agree with you. Officers were treated different. Officers were very much, um, you gotta kind of check the right boxes. You gotta yes. stroke the right egos. I feel on the officer side, I'd agree with you. But as an enlisted, I was mouthy. I had an attitude. I knife hand. I fought. Um, but people put up with it because I outworked everybody. Outworked and got the results. On the and side. I got the results. Yeah, absolutely. You have to get the results. So you, you started off in, uh, you know, working in the CBs. Um, you, you found yourself in, in Iraq. What what do you remember? What was you did multiple tours? Was there one that stood out more than another? I would say the biggest thing from Iraq, we were supposed to go to Rota, Spain, and then we had like a 30 day notice that hey, Rota, Spain's not happening, boys. You know, you're going to Iraq and you're going to do convoy security. We're construction workers, um, but we have some history there. We have some history as CBs, you, as CBs. So we you have went there history. as a CB, got yep. it. And a lot of CBs deployed and, and they did different missions. So, um, Iraq, plain and simple, was. Miser was the bonding, the fraternal brotherhood, mm -hmm. you know, uh, males and females, but man, it was probably my best deployment. It, it was probably the most memorable deployment where I made the most friends because when you're in the suck, it, it's, it's comforting. You know, you build a bond in, in the suck, if you will. You build a bond mm -hmm. in, in the struggle. When it's nice and it's fun and, and it's training and, and the bullets aren't real, people are, you know, people, they have their feelings, you know, they get their feelings. When lives are on the line, like, and we're all you have, when we leave the wire, we did convoy security for about seven months, um, you build a bond. And so I definitely miss that. Um, and I'm sure that's something a lot of veterans uh, would attest to. 
And a lot of people in the civilian world, when they have a good organizational opportunity, when they have an organization and a team that is tight like that, um, I'm sure they, they could agree that those are the better scenarios that you want to be in. So when you, when you talk about building bonds through adversity and, and convoy ops, give people a sense for that. You know, when you, you talked about leaving the lines and you're going on a, on a convoy, how far would it be from your line to where you're going? What, what was an average oh, trip? So an average trip uh, across the different fobs, I mean, some, sometimes days we wouldn't come back to our fob for days. Um, so typically, um, and, and for reference, we escorted trucks, right? That was our main thing. We were mm -hmm. escorting uh, third uh, local nationals, right? The drivers uh, of the bigger trucks that would take construction materials, dirt, sometimes God knows what, we, we would escort people um, from a base to a base, a fob to a fob. How many vehicles? Um, the biggest you'd get would be like 36. You'd have your six gun trucks and you'd have- It's a big target. You'd have five to six trucks in between each. So maybe 36, we, you know, and there were certainly some times where we had to execute uh, to get off the X, to get out of there, right? We had some things happen. Um, everybody made it home safe um, from that deployment, not without um, some bumps and bruises, but. Um, Is it hard to drive down the road now and, and not, not put yourself in that place because you're, on, you're in such a defensive posture? I would say that's initially because we were stationed in Southern California. Yeah, there was probably some of that initially. Mm -hmm. um, there were some times where you'd get stranded and you'd have to do a day op. And, and we, not that we weren't built for that. We, I mean, we certainly, we executed it, but what, it wasn't ideal. Most people moved at night. Um, you, you didn't want to be on their roads when the, when, I don't mean any disrespect, when the donkeys are on the road. When, mm -hmm. you know, we'd have kids on donkeys riding next to us. So uh, when, when, you're, when your biggest threat's IEDs um, and you get stuck at night for, for somebody got hit, somebody in front of you, something happened, um, it certainly puts you a little on edge when you're in the middle of their daily track. Like they're trying to live their life too. Um, and they're moving about during the day. So day ops were definitely a, a different animal, but I think I've outgrown most of that. I think everybody in Dallas hates traffic. I think everybody in <laughs> Dallas drives defensively and hates, you know, it's like 90 miles an hour isn't fast enough here. So um, I'd say no, not anymore. So is that, I mean, like what, when you were over there as a CB, what kind of stuff were y'all were y'all building? I mean, because convoy security is not the normal job. No, it is of the CBs. It is not. So, so it's you build it after it's erected, then you turn to the next best use of of your talents, or, or so. In general, CBs would deploy with Army, with Marines, with Special Forces, mm -hmm. um, and we would build out their fobs. Right? They get there, they put up tents, they put up hasty cops, uh, they they put up you know barbed wire, and they start running ops and with tents, we come and build plywood swah huts, right? We come and put air conditioners what, what's on the What's a plywood swah hut? Uh, Southwest Asia. So a plywood building, a 16 okay. by 16, 16 by 32, uh, maybe a Connex box they're sleeping out of. We'll add air conditioning, we'll add electrical, we'll put a set of stairs, you know? We're there to make the warfighter more comfortable. Maybe some people would disagree with me, but that's what we, you know, that's what we would do over there, Expeditions, expeditionary, right? Our role that's, was that's, to make the warfighter more comfortable so they could be more effective. Um, they just happened in 2005 to 2006 in Ramadi. They just, they must have needed a lot more. Maybe the Army and the Marines were mm -hmm. doing other things. So they brought us in probably to supplement a lot of that. So my team and, and other teams like me did convoy ops um, where we escorted from base to base. Um, but a lot of CBs in general would deploy and they would build to improve the quality of life for the people on those camps. 
So were you ever on a ship? I was never on a ship. So um, that, that is one nice part about being a CB is we only see ships if we uh, want to visit them as a, as, a, as a fan or a civilian on a pier or something. But um, So for somebody wanting to join the uh, Navy, the who, Navy who doesn't like ships. Asked to be a CB. Okay. Well, then how, how did you get selected to be a, uh, a drill instructor? So, so um, having completed enough sea time, you're up for shore duty. I did an instructor billet, uh, shore duty for the CBs. Um, having done another sea tour, my next shore duty was available and you, you can ask for it. Or at the time, I'll be honest, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to go back to sea. Um, there was nothing available. Um, and so drill instructors are available for any rate in the Navy. Any, any seagoing, sub, air, warfare, anybody um, can apply to be a drill instructor. There's about, I don't know, eight, 900 um, billets uh, at Great Lakes, uh, which is in Illinois where our boot camp is. So about eight or 900 positions to be filled as a drill instructor. As a correct? drill instructor or some of the support instructor staff, the firefighting, the gun range. So there's, I mean, there might be close to a thousand billets in Great Lakes. Why did you not want to do it? Well, okay, because as a CB, I'm just very hard headed where my pipeline is. We're a very small community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's only, I'm going to get this number wrong. Maybe there's 5,000 CBs, you know, very tight knit. And then half are in Gulfport, Mississippi. The other half are in Ventura, California, mm -hmm. Port Runnymede, California. Um, so in my mind at the time, I didn't want to leave my community. You know, I was very kind of, I don't want to say brainwashed, but I was very proud of being a CB. I'd done the Iraq deployment. I wanted to do more. Um, so I just believed that I needed to stay in my community. Uh, obviously the best thing that ever happens to us sometimes isn't what we want, uh, but what we make of it. And I was kind of told by the detailer, Hey, it's this or go overseas. Um, so I chose to go to our, uh, you know, I screened and got, um, ended up going to be a drill instructor. So is that you were going to have to do a, what we would refer to as a B billet or a, a, uh, a secondary duty. You were going to have to do something. Yes. They and wouldn't so, let me do what I wanted. My first choice, which was to go back to battalion, which is our sea going deployable. Mm -hmm. Like that's where you make your money as a CB. Um, that's our ship. You know, that's our uh, bread and butter. That was not available for me when the window was open. Um, I, I tried all kinds of things to make it happen. It just didn't happen. And God had other plans for me. And, uh, so, so what I know about the, um, you know, the drill instructor community uh, is obviously from the, the, the Marine Corps perspective. I mean, having been under the thumb of a few of them uh, in my years. But I, I knew that from a career advancement standpoint, and not too advanced, but it, it's, it's in order to, to become more professionally rounded, you have to do certain things like this. And so drill instructor duty, like recruiting duty, was an incredibly powerful stepping stone, but it could also derail you in a heartbeat because it's very, very unforgiving from the standpoint of, if you do something wrong with a, with a recruit, from the standpoint of losing your cool or stepping out of line in any way, it could end your career. Is it like that in the Navy as well? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is the, the top 10% mm -hmm. are going to massively benefit in their career from the leadership, the, ex, the, the experience, and certainly the eval saying, you know, recruit training command when you do really well. Um, a lot of RDCs do good. And it doesn't catapult their career. And then you're absolutely right there. There, I, I definitely was witness to some open captain's mask for some inappropriate and, and craziness 
um, that does in people's career and even there was potentially some criminal stuff here and there I mean it's a and large command it's a large high stress environment um, it's certainly a make or break uh, moment in your career and so and by the way, an opens Captain Mass, that's kind of like being called into the boss's office. That's, that's and, the CEO calling you in and inviting everybody to watch your ass chewing. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So did you, how did you get prepared to become a drill instructor? So there is a, a there is a pretty good, right, onboarding mm -hmm. process. There's a pretty good training pipeline for RDCs. So, so RDCs that had already, uh, drill instructors, who had already proven, you know, four, five, six pushes, they get selected to be this, the, the drill instructor instructor, the train the trainer. Okay. Um, so it's a great pipeline. You come in and they beat, they, they beat the brakes off you, right, PT. They use PT to break you down. And, and there's The Navy? The, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm saying <laughs> the Navy breaks you down. But anybody who's ever worn a red rope knows, at least in 2011, they beat the brakes off you. They run the, what, however fast you think you can run, somebody on their staff can run faster and will break you. Um, so they do, and, but they build you back up. They teach you. You're going to be around recruits. You know, you're going to be around these these young, impressionable minds, and they want to make sure you're ready. So there is a there's definitely a good training pipeline uh, for the C school program. So you you went through boot camp uh, obviously in order to to join. Mm -hmm. How was it going back through boot camp this time as a drill instructor? You knew you knew the the game. You knew that you were being prepared to be on the other side of it, but they're still gonna mess with you because they they have to. I mean, that's they're showing you how to do it now, but there's a pride, a pridefulness that has to, to get in the way a little bit. At, for always speaking for myself and my experience, it's definitely a, an us against them. You know, you're in a class with other uh, future RDCs that you're gonna push with, you're gonna, you're gonna see on the drill, drill deck, you're gonna see through your your time there, th these are your people, right? So it, you definitely develop like an us against them mentality and the instructors know it and they're okay with it because sometimes that's what it takes. Like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know? So it, it takes a bonding of that class and the other class is kind of around you and um, the, 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 the blue ropes are the uh, drill instructors in training. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a, a blue rope mentality of like us against them, let's support each other, let's Let's come, let's get through this process together and then we'll be one of them. So were you, am I making the wrong assumption though, when you went through boot camp or when you went through the training, was it like going through boot camp again where you're, you're basically staying with your platoon day no. in and day out? No, not, no. Okay. So, so it was more instructional. It's more instruction. Yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, it, it's more instruction. It's more, there's about a six week classroom portion where it's like, like I said, the PT is, is, is rather annoying. Um, I, I'm just not a runner, um, and they use running a lot. So, um, and then there's a, a lot of course of instruction. You're going through leadership. You're going through ethics. You're going through uh, how to fold and stow a rack. Everything you're going to teach and expect of your of your student, your recruit, um, you have to show, right? So I'm getting graded by them on my ability to follow all the instructions that I'm then going to ask the recruit, uh, being the new student, right, the civilian to sailor. Um, everything I'm going to ask of them, I have to show proficiency in before I'm allowed to proceed. So there is a level of it, but mm -hmm. it's in a classroom setting. So, so it's not the same. It's not like you went through boot camp no. a second time. No, 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 no. That would have been a, that would have been a different animal, I'm sure. Yeah, and and that's I know some services do kind of view it like that. So you guys do not. But then does that prepare you properly? 
to set that you know certain expectations with the with the recruits. I, I think the only difference would be maybe it, it, you don't gain the empathy of what they're going through, mm -hmm. um, but it certainly prepares you. You do a six week class portion, and then you do about a I think it's like a six seven week. Uh, shadow phase and that's where you're you're no longer in a classroom you're still mustering for PT you're still doing inspections um, but that's where you go shadow a division and you go you go spend the time with the division you you learn from the other RDCs uh, the other drill instructors mm -hmm. uh, so it's a shadow phase it, 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 it might be like a, a, a OJT right on the job training you might like if you're a new hire you get put with a senior hire kind of the same concept you you bring up an, an, an interesting word and phrase there it, it doesn't give you the same level of empathy. Does it, is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I, I say you should have the empathy already because you've been a sailor, you've been to the fleet, you know what they're, you, some of us appreciated that they signed up and some of us treated them, I don't want to say some, some people, right? A small minority, mm -hmm. there is a power trip that comes with that level of control of a situation, that level of control of an environment. There is an authoritarian mindset that some people develop. Um, I would say most artists, it's just like any job. Most people go in with the right intentions. Most people can have the empathy. I had the empathy that though I was not perfect and though I would apologize to many of my recruits from my past life because I did push very hard. I would say sorry if I got the chance. Uh, there was an in-state in mind, right? There's a little Machiavellian too, even in somebody like me who cared. But I did try. There were moments where they get a letter. There were moments where they do a phone call and they break. Somebody got diagnosed with cancer. Somebody, somebody died in a, you know, I had a troop. You know, I could have been a smart ass and be like, oh, your boyfriend broke up with you. And just on the floor crying. And I'm, what the hell? Brother was killed the night before, wrapped around a tree. You know, she found out on the first phone call home, second phone call home, whatever it was. So real life would hit you and you'd be reminded this is somebody's child. This is somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's potential husband, wife. Um, so if you remind yourself that, the, you know, even though we're in a student training environment, even though they're recruits and we're in charge, they're human. You know, there's a human element there. And that's where empathy should come from. So, you know, you were talking about the, the power trips that some people gain. And I want to come back here in just a minute to the, uh, to the male-female aspect of, of basic training because that was something I did not experience. But the, the power trip aspect, did you guys get to study or were you asked to study, presented with that whole Stanford project? You know what I'm talking uh, about? The, the, is, that, um, is that specifically the one where... They would buzz pain and it was like it was fake, but they had to keep pressing the number. Uh, I think that may have been a part of it, but it, it basically was saying randomly, you you know, this group is going to be in a prisoner role. Yeah. This group is going to the be guards. in the guard role. Yeah. And they saw people taking on these personas, this, you know, the power trip aspect yeah. that you were talking about. And it, and it, it got out of control to the point where they had to end the, the experiment. Uh, yeah. 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 Did, was it, did you experience any power trips like that? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and how do you, how do you, how do you put that in check as someone? I mean, I don't, I would assume that wasn't you. Uh, I, I made some mistakes. Okay. I, I definitely made some mistakes. I, I would say, and I'm a very competitive person now, but I would say competition in the high stress environment. Um, like I said, there are some people I'd say sorry to. 
You know, I, I, I was, there were times where you'd go Machiavelli, you know. But in, were you pushing them to be better? In my mind, yes, but that doesn't make it right. I mean, I will give you a story, right? And this is embarrassing as hell, but slashing zeros is like the biggest deal in boot camp. You got to teach mean? these kids to slash a zero because handwriting is judged. Their handwriting is judged. You have to get people with good handwriting to write in the deck log, write the watch bill. I attempted to make another man eat a piece of paper because he m multiple times did not slash a zero. You know, the, the thought crossed my mind, the paper went to his mouth and we stopped short there. But just the fact that I did that, I still look back on that moment and I would say sorry to him if, if I ever could. I mean, when you're in the heat of the moment, so I, to answer the question, to get around that, in those high stakes environment, that's why there's three RDCs, the problem, the three drill instructors, I think the openness protects most people, the good and the bad. Um, the problem is it's such a high stakes environment. There's so much sleep depravity because we're driving 30 minutes home, trying to have a life, trying to eat dinner, trying to talk to our family, 30 minutes back, got to get there early to get them in. I mean, there's times I'm sleeping four or five hours a night and I'm drinking, you know, at the time you ever seen the monsters, they're called mm -hmm. the big, the BFCs, the big fucking yeah. cans. Yeah. I used to pop a BFC. Mind you, this was my morning, six, five, I get there five 30. If they have a six o'clock wake up, I pop a BFC. I take a swig. I take a five-hour energy, I dump it in the BFC, and that's breakfast. I mean, That's I, not healthy. I, a lot of, and I don't know, the Marine Corps is probably similar. I mean, there is some sleep deprived. So my, my issue there is because the sleep deprived is a thing, because people are so competitive and push so hard, there are times where you're alone with 88 recruits, and that's usually, normally it's not mob mentality. Normally somebody in the room is like, okay, I'm going to be the good guy, and you're going to be the bad guy. You got to yeah, have a good yeah, guy. Yeah. You got to have a good guy. Um, but when you're alone and you're trying to fill both roles and there was a time where Manning was short and I was the only RDC for my division. And for, and for how many, how many recruits did you have? I had at that division, I probably had 75, 80 recruits. So you had, you were one person. That well, there was two of us. Okay. I was, I had four divisions under me. I had a, a, what was called a hop. So she had, she was on her second. It was two of us. But if she needed to be somebody somewhere else at medical, if she, she was usually my runner. She was usually the one because you, you got to learn your rope. So mm -hmm. she would be the one going to run errands or take recruits somewhere, babysit recruits somewhere. And I was generally by myself with the division. And, and I found that is the more high stress. And that's also the times um, where I probably made more of my mistakes. Whereas when I gained maturity, gained experience, realized there was a time and a place for competition. And then there's a time where I took, you know, early on, you know, um, the, the whole thing, trying to make kids puke, you know, that, that was a thing at a, at a time, I'm sure. And I'd hope they'd outgrown that, but that was a thing, you know, and, and this was 2011, 2012. I mean, you're in your mind, you're pushing for the right reasons. Um, but it sounds like you'd do it differently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of things differently. I, and I did, I did get a chance on the back end. They call it the back end. I pushed six divisions. Um, I, you have a whole job where you feel like a training or support role, which is good. You need to decompress. You need to get a different side of that command. And then when you go back, uh, I was so much better, so much better on, the, on that second half when, when I had that experience. That manning shortage was hard, though. There was a lot of new and, and inexperienced and lack of leadership. I mean, in a culture, you need good leaders. You need leaders on the ground around because you can't just have everybody in the C-suite. You can't just have everybody in the back office. You can't have everybody in the boardroom. Like you need actual people who understand leadership. I'm not saying I would do everything different. I mean, 98% of what I, 
of how I executed, I'm very proud of, and I have some amazing, I mean, I got, I got emails from sailors that were promoting, out promoting their peers. I got, I got sailors that were kicking ass and thankful for how hard we pushed them. Um, I, I think that's really important for, for anyone listening who's thinking, I don't want my child to go through that. Because what, what, we, what he just described, that's hazing. And, and, and yes, Some I, pieces I, of it. I yes. understand that, that there are, there are moments of humanity where we go, Hmm, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. hundred percent. But I'm glad you used the, the, you know, the 98% because 98% of the time, all the right things are happening for the right reasons and it's building the right person. And I think it's also, you know, if we're going to be that critical of something like what we were just discussing. What that means is as a parent, you've done things right 100% of the oh. time. And that's, that's not a fair judgment either because even though you guys have been trained, you're human beings and there's a 2% uh, yeah. you know, there's element. A two, there's a plus or minus deviation factor, I think. Much better um, way to and, say it. And again, as you said, it, it, I mean, it's no different than what law enforcement's deal with when the video shows a fourth of the angle and four minutes of a 30 minute encounter. Um, what I will say is every recruit that graduated, graduated with above and beyond ability because the RDCs who do push, right? We call it the gray, right? There's a black and white and the good ones find the gray. Um, we push hard. They know why we're pushing them hard. Mm -hmm. They know why if you can take this, you can take anything because guess what? The fleet, right? We call it the fleet. It's unforgiving because lives are going to be on the line. This is a controlled environment. No matter how mean I get, no matter how many cuss words I say, I'm still under control and I have somebody that has my back because we're not all going to just go full crazy, right? There's always going to be somebody that's sitting there like, okay, we're good. We're not going to jail. You know, there's always going to be an RDC, an observer. Not everybody's going to be bad cop, right? Not everybody's going to go flip the racks. Um, but there is an end state to say, hey, when we can train in a controlled environment, we need to push your limits. We mm -hmm. need to know what you're capable of because out there, if you make a mistake, somebody dies and people do die in the fleet. People do die in the Marine Corps in training. And that's unfortunate, but it's, it, it, it's when you can control the environment, you need to up the tempo as much as you can. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate. You don't want to say that it's necessary. You don't want to say that. I agree. But it, it's, it's just, it's part of the world. You, you want it's, to get as close to that line as you can um, without going over. So you, you talked, and I, I still want to come back to the, to the gender aspect of it because I think it, it's such an interesting piece. But uh, walk me through the aspect of being a family man as a drill instructor. I don't, I think it's kind of like akin to, you know, and I, and I haven't done either one of these things, but I think it's akin to uh, being a police officer. I mean, you're on, 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 and then all of a sudden you got to come home and totally turn it off. I, that is a hard, hard thing to do for the I, human brain. I can sum it up like this. My wife would routinely have to yell at me to say they're not your recruits. I had a, let's see, my daughter would have been, my daughter would have been 11. My son would have been four or five. And then my, my youngest daughter was born there. Um, routinely, they're not your recruits. Because recruits will snap too. Recruits will move. 
for the most part, recruits want to please the drill instructor. Recruits, they know like we treated it as a competition. We want to win. There's flags, there's competition, there's praise at the end, being the best yeah. division on the drill deck when you graduate. Um, they want to win too, you know, so they're moving fast. They're competing. Most of your guys and gals, they want to win. So um, the family aspect was hard. I, I do advise people, and I'm sure the Marines would say the same thing. Don't go be a drill instructor if your family's not in order. You really, you either need to be single, and even for the single people out there, there's nobody to do your laundry, there's nobody to buy your groceries, there's nobody to fill your fridge. Because if you're working 16 hour days, seven days a week for eight weeks at a time, um, there's nobody to hold down the home front. Um, and if you do have a home front, you better be good. You know, they, you, your, your, your husband or wife better be semi-independent and not need to call you for every bug, every spider, every light bulb that goes out. Like, they better be, they better be, I'm not saying they gotta be perfect, um, you gotta be rock solid. You definitely need a rock solid family to take on that kind of role. Yeah, and and I, I think that's a, a really good parallel to life in general, you know, life in, in corporate America. If things aren't good at home, they're not gonna be good at work. And if things aren't good at work, they're, they're gonna be challenged at home. And I'm not saying it's a direct correlation, but it's the importance of balance, and you have to have the, the, the family balance. Well, balance and communication. They, yeah, they need to absolutely. know what they're signing up for. And I'm sure billable hours in the corporate world's no different. You know, mm -hmm. They know what they're signing up for. So you had men and women mm -hmm. going through boot camp. boot camp at the same time. Yes. Did, did they share the barracks? Was it, was it open squad bays? I mean, because that seems like that's a recipe for disaster. So the way it worked, uh, and, and I did push several integrated, we call them integrated male uh, and female together. Mm -hmm. um, so the way it would work is your, your brother division, right? So two departments, they would sleep across from each other in these big, the, these uh, the ships, we call them the big barracks. Um, all the males, so the males from both divisions would sleep in one house, one compartment, and the females would sleep together in the other compartment. So they'd be right across from each other. So the RDCs would go back and forth uh, to lead their divisions. Okay. And so that seems to me like that would be very difficult. I don't know that I could yell at a woman. They can I yell, don't know they that can yell I, at themselves. They can yell at themselves. But do you, did you find yourself going easier just because of, of the whole traditional man aspect of things, do you find yourself going easier on the females? Wow. Uh, so let me tell, let me give you a story if I may. And, and when they were running one of their first, one of my first divisions was integrated was females and they were on the track. I managed to yell out loud in a public setting, your tampon will not stop somebody from shooting you. That's pretty bold. Yeah. I mean, again, I'd probably do it different. Right. But, but I, it's, but it's accurate. It is. The, the enemy does not care that Western countries choose to have women who serve. Many of our enemies don't. Many of our enemies don't have females who serve, if you really think about that, right? Everyone on our side does, and we're, we're all about equality and everything. Our enemy does not, and, and they, will not, they will not show mercy because you're a female. And, and I drove that home to my females. I drove that home, and I pushed them hard, and I took a lot of pride in them. I do have two daughters. I have several sisters. Uh, I took a lot of pride in, in pushing the female side of the house. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that deep down I probably didn't mentor a little more or, or, or take a little more liking to them. Um, I'm not going to lie and, and sit here and say I'm not. Um, I wasn't a little biased. Um, but In their favor. 
because, their favor. Because you, and is that because... deep down I wanted them to win and I wanted them to not go to the fleet and be unsuccessful or try to rely on... The, I wanted them to win on their own merit, to win on their own action. I wanted them to step up. I, I personally, I don't like the military standard. Um, they are given much more time to run and they're mm -hmm. given, and they have a much lower standard uh, for the PT. I don't think that sets them up for success. And I, and I took a lot of pride in my girls um, out PT and getting better at PT because that was one way you could match your male counterpart. I didn't want them to go to the fleet and be dainty. I didn't want them to go to the fleet and be um, less capable because the Navy, in my opinion, stupidly, oh, you have more time to run. Like, well, the enemy doesn't think so, right? And you're going to go to combat because in our country, we send women into combat. So why give them less of a physical standard? Why make them weaker, slower, allow them to be bigger? Why do all that if you're then going to send them to the same place you send me? And that guy doesn't care if anything I mean, of recent events. You're setting them up for failure. You're setting them up for failure, absolutely. Now, if you're going to keep them in the back, okay, let's have the conversation. And that's what they want. But they want to be downrange. They want to be with us. So why then give them a lower standard to train to and execute to, but then ask them to do the same damn thing you're asking me to do? It didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I pushed my girls to push to the male standard. Let's get you to the male standard to pass a PFA. And a lot Did of them Did most appreciate it. that? Most appreciated, yes. I'd say majority of my females appreciated the way that I held them to a higher standard and I helped them get there. And what kind of pushback did you get from other men? Zero. Because they're, we're, these are our brothers and sisters. Like we're gonna be serving with them. Why would you, why would you disagree with my way? Why, why, what's in it for you to want me to be nice to them? They're going to be on the ship with you, you know, now on the submarine with you. They're going to be downrange with us. Why wouldn't you want them to be the baddest versions of themselves they could be? So why have we not, and, and for the record, I completely agree with you. I'm fine with, with, you know, women in the military. I'm fine with anyone achieving anything based on a meritocracy. But, but it almost has gotten to the point. Where, and I've had a couple of guests where we've talked about this, and, and I, I believe that the women in the military feel the same way. Don't treat me differently. Well, and they don't want to be, they don't want to serve with a woman who didn't have to earn it. Exactly. They're, uh, and let's be real, any woman that's honest, women are more critical of women than men are. Uh, I would say so. Women, I, I like to say women eat their own. So. <laughs> so, so you actually found yourself in a lot of ways pushing the women harder is, I mean, I, I kind of heard both, so clarify that for me. When I had the female house, when I was in charge of the female side, absolutely, I pushed them harder. Um, I, I, I think all my male recruits would, would, would question how hard I pushed them, because I pushed, I, I think I was fair. I think I was fair because I just chalked, I like to look at it very simply. I deployed with men and women, things happened. I learned a lot, right? There was an incident, I learned a lot. and. Looking well, you can't gloss over that. What do you mean there was an incident? We, we had an incident where uh, one of our teammates pulled a gun on myself, and he pulled a gun on somebody else, and uh, court-martialed. Um, was this overseas? Yeah, in Iraq. Yeah, on our Iraq deployment. Did they snap? Yeah, he did. He snapped. He, uh, what happened? We, we were in our first firefight. He didn't engage. Long story short, he didn't engage. Um, he should have. He was in. That was his sector. That, that, was, that was his area we were getting shot at, where he should have helped us shoot back. He didn't. Um, we proceeded to rough him up a little after that. You don't deserve, you know, 
again, we're, eight, we're 19, 20 years old. Um, nobody told us, hey, there's mental health. Hey, this guy may not be cut out for this. Hey, chief, we probably should take this guy off the convoy. We didn't. Um, I don't even think anybody told chief, um, our, our leader at the time. Um, and basically, we're in, a, we're in a chapel, funny enough, doing mission brief. I'm hazing him. You know, we're, I'm a gunner. He's a gunner. You don't deserve a gun, you know. So we're kind of picking on the guy. Well, he pulls a gun on me, you know, tells me to shut the fuck up. You know, pulls a nine mil, doesn't rack it, it's not loaded, I'm not scared. I proceed to tell him, you're dead to me, you know. Again, there's no mental health training in 2005 in Ramadi. Uh, so you're dead to me, you know. Um, uh, maybe a week goes by, um, we're in another incident. One of, the, one of the protocols is to count your VIX in front of you, make sure you ain't been infiltrated. You know, the, the rear of the convoy is dealing with something. Um, we're all kind of on edge. Um, the driver grabs him to say, hey, motherfucker, you know, how many VIX you got? Pulls it, racks it, puts it on fire, puts it in his face. And says, don't ever fucking talk to me again. Um, and so we drop. This is him. the same guy. Yeah, same guy. So I, he, didn't, I didn't tell anybody. So he's now pulled a weapon on. Twice on twice. his team. I didn't tell anybody. There was other witnesses. We just thought, you know, again, looking back, we do a lot of things different. I'm almost 40 now. Um, didn't tell anybody. Everybody saw it. I thought no big deal. He pulled it on him. Um, now people know vehicle commander we drop him off we never see him again until his court martial where we're all witnesses and i remember distinctly thinking like had he shot restrepo was his name but had he shot my friend it would have been my fault yeah because i didn't tell anybody and i didn't realize this till I'll, I'll just say i got a counselor before i retired as most people should get counseling um and i'm talking through all this and she's like do you ever think everybody is a i won't say his name but do you ever think that you're so hard on people because you want to break so they don't get the chance to shoot your friend? And it was kind of like one of those moments where I'm like, because I'm hard on people. And, you know, I was pushing him and pushing him. I essentially broke him, but nothing happened, right? He still had access to it. And, and had he shot my friend, Restrepo was a good friend of mine, it would have been my fault, yeah, because I didn't tell anybody. And so... The counselor uh, kind of asked me, she's like, do you ever feel that has maybe implanted in you a calling to break people? So that's probably another, uh, a whole other conversation. But um, yeah, that definitely, it definitely had an impact on how hard I was pushing. And honestly, it probably propelled my career because I pushed so hard. But the pushing hard, what was it? Because you just wanted to see how far you could push? Because I didn't want people to break when it counted. So you, you kind of found yourself in a drill instructor mode from the very beginning. Yeah. Drill instructor was very natural to me. It came almost immediately to me. And I think looking back, that might be why. Because I took so much pride in training and working hard and working with people because I never wanted anyone to experience that again. One, I wish he would have never broke. I wish he was stronger. I wish he was more resilient. I wish that would have never happened, but it did. What could I do to make sure that doesn't happen again? I can make people stronger. Yeah, I want, what I want you to do is I want you to break that down. How would, you, how would you have approached that differently knowing what you know now and the, the incident that you described where you pushed him to that point? How do you approach that differently now to put him in the most advantageous position to help the, the team? So first, I would say training because we didn't have time to train. We were doing construction planning to go to Rota, Spain, and it was 
after Memorial Day, they recalled everybody's leave and we got like a 30-day notice that we were gonna not only deploy to Iraq now, but we were gonna do convoy security, something we'd never done before. So I, we had a little bit of training, but I don't think near enough. So looking back, more training. And then at the time, I get it, you know, they needed us. Um, there probably wasn't a lot of, there, there, there wasn't a filtering process to make sure they got the right people to do that job. So I would say training and in the training, there, there, there needed to be some kind of vetting process to make sure we took the right people to Iraq and we put the guns in the hands of the right people. Um, so I would say training, vetting, and then I would say my chief was, my, my leader was just sleep deprived worse than everybody else. He's expected to plan these routes, plan these convoys, be in the talk, be in the briefs. He's expected to get updated intel. So while we're doing weapons watch and, and sleeping rotations, that man never slept. You know, so I think there was a leadership gap there where kind of the inmates were running the asylum a little. I, I think that mid-level leadership, there were people senior ranking to us. We were all E3s, E2s. Uh, there were people senior to us that didn't step in. So I think empowering your leaders to identify and recognize a problem early um, could have avoided that second incident. Yeah, I, I think it's important that, that people understand, you know, we, we, we do a lot of things really well in the, in the military, but one thing we're really good at in hindsight is is being critical of our own mistakes um and so I, I i think i think it's great that you're sharing a lot of this because it's reality and people you know, don't like reality it, it, no they they don't and but it's not the norm we're giving people extremes of situations yes. because like you said 98 percent of the time um Everything's you know, going good. Everything goes well. Yep. And, you know, that's, it's really no different. And I don't want to go too far down this path, but, um, you know, you were at the state fair when, when the shooting uh, occurred not too long ago. You were very, very close to it. I was 100, 100 yards away from where that incident went down. Yeah. And that's, I mean, no one, well, I shouldn't say no one, only a couple of people had any kind of training to deal with this stuff. And so I, th I just think it's important that we put into perspective the things we're talking about here, these extremes are really more of a preparation for worst case scenarios than anything else. And what, do you, what would you learn? What would your audience learn if we sat here and just patted ourselves on the back? They wouldn't learn anything. I could tell you. They, they'd I, go, oh, that's cool or that's I neat. could tell you a hundred stories where people smiled and laughed and had a good time. But what would that be? You know, most of my career was fantastic. There were some shitty moments and there's some things I would do different. I think there's a lot more to learn if I were to just be humble and share the mistakes. But yeah, you're, you're right. Somebody could say, oh, that guy, oh, boot camp. No, boot camp changes people's lives. People came from nothing. People came from bad situations. People came from gang violence. People came from broken homes. And the military offered them an opportunity to join something and though not perfect, still better than what they had opportunity and a lot of people. I came from the middle of Houston, mom, no dad, not the greatest situation. I made the most of it. I live in a very nice, after a 20 year military career, I live in a very nice area. I made a lot of good decisions and I, and I married a woman that's very good with money, but you know, I'm very fortunate to be here. Hard work. Yeah. So you're talking about, um, you know, the way people, People need to understand certain things, and, and Memorial Day is one of those things that we don't understand very well. No, it's don't. what carry the load is all about. 
Um, you've not been to one of our events yet, but uh, I know I'm going to pull you out there this year. Help people understand from the perspective of somebody who spent 20 years in, in, in the Navy, why do Americans need a better understanding of Memorial Day? So uh, I haven't been to one of your events. I so look forward to it, man. But I, I got to do the wreath laying at Arlington uh, when I was at my last duty station. And a friend of mine took me out there and we laid wreaths. And Memorial Day for me was epitomized watching a family, a wife and three children with a young daughter. Uh, I think it was like daughter, son, daughter. Um, lay a blanket and a picnic on their father's grave and bawl their fucking eyes out, man. And I think in that moment, I knew why I'm getting mad. I'm getting sad thinking about it. I knew why I never wanted to be thanked for my service on Memorial Day. Cause I get to go home to my family. I get to tuck my kids in at night and you wouldn't believe you go to Arlington for the wreath laying you will see people come out of the woodworks to honor their family, and you will see so many kids crying. And what a reminder. I mean, Memorial Day got it, I think, 1868, right, or whenever it was. Um, got it. Absolutely. Pay homage. Pay respect to those who have built and fought to what we have. But, I mean, it's right here. People are still dying. People are still dying in service to this country. Um, and so, for me, Arlington was, it was like monumental. I mean, to, to just be reminded of how fortunate I am when, you know, IED goes off and no shrapnel and I get to go home with a concussion, you know, guy shooting at me, can't hit a fuck broadside of a barn. I get to go home, you know, and then to see this little girl and she was around my daughter's age. And I mean, I'm crying in the middle of Arlington, grown man. This ain't my kid. I don't know this girl, but she looked, she reminded me of my daughter and, uh, just thinking that he's not there for her. And what that would mean to me to not be there for my daughter. That's why Memorial Day is so important to me. I, I, I almost feel guilty because I'm, I'm smiling as you're telling this story. And, and, and for anyone watching uh, this episode, the reason I'm smiling is because what you described was the family basically having a picnic with their father. Now, that's that's... That's not anything to be, um, to be lauded, but that connectedness with their father in the grave, I mean, that's as close as they're going to get to being with him get. and that's all they get, but that's better than nothing at all. Yeah. And, and so it, you, you gave me a really powerful image there and you know, Arlington National Cemetery, we, and we actually have a, uh, a lot of people don't realize this, Arlington National Cemetery is not part of the, uh, the National Cemetery Administration, um, but it's, it's in the same vein. And people need to understand how important it is to go out there and see these headstones, go out there and, and talk to the families when they're out there visiting that person who unfortunately is no longer with us, especially those we lost in a, in a combat environment. There, and there is a very large section for OEF, OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Afghanistan. There's a very large section and it's almost guaranteed somebody's family will be there. Um, and if you go for the reef laying, I don't remember when it was, I think it's in the fall, um, but it was a massive event and uh, there was a lot of that going on, man. Did you lose any friends? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 
I, I would say for, we were very fortunate. Our unit was very fortunate. Um, I, I have lost people that I served with, um, not in combat, um, but unfortunately to, uh, to suicide. So I've, I've lost a few people I've served with to suicide. Our combat deployment, we were very fortunate. We, uh, we did not lose anybody, um, but yeah. Since then, yeah, I have. You actually bring up a really good thing, and I, and I, and I kind of want to end on this. We do a very poor job in the military allowing ourselves to be victimized. Like you said, you know, some people taking their own lives. Um, you know, the, the father uh, in the grave with his, with his children and wife having a picnic above ground. Um, are we victims? No, no, we're, no. no I mean, nobody's a victim. I mean, in my, in my eyes, nobody's a victim. Life deals, like life deals. Life's hard. Um, it's, not, it's not supposed to be easy, and it's never gonna be easy. I, I, don't, I don't, the military, we are certainly not victims. We have way more benefits, um, way more opportunities. Um, we, we could certainly throw stones at the VA system, and, and, and there, there's certainly some opportunity there for growth on their part. Um, but it, it would be no different if I were to jump on that bandwagon, but then I blame politicians, I blame the swamp. If I were to talk any of that, um, I, I can't do both, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm saying, hey, the swamp is the swamp and we need to do our own thing, we need to be ready on our own, it's up to us, it's up to families, it's up to communities. I can't then say, oh yeah, but it's the VA's fault people kill themselves. You know, I can't, I, I don't do that. Yeah. It's all or nothing. It's up to me to lead my family. It's up to my family to be a good family, to attract other families to want to support and, and, and be a part of my family, my extended network. Like it's up to me. In other words, we have to take responsibility. We do, but I, I do say that knowing that, especially I retired out of little, uh, I got out of the military out of Little Creek, which is a SEAL expeditionary. Mostly it's where a lot of the East Coast SEALs are. Um, they, they lose some heroes, man. They, they lose. So, so I want to say that cautiously. Like I'm not saying family's the answer because I've seen some men that, that have resumes you could write a movie on and they, they take their life. And so I'm not saying I have the answer. I just, I don't blame the VA system solely. I, I don't know what causes somebody to do that. Um, I wish I did. I know a lot of people wish they did um, because man, I've seen some damn war heroes um, you know, yeah. with, with beautiful families take their own life, you know? So that's, it's a tough one. Um, but I, I'm, I'm glad to hear your perspective. We are not victims. Nobody no. is a victim. And, no. and we have to take responsibility to pull ourselves out of situations. And, and we, hey, we're, we're human beings. And unfortunately, some of our guys have, uh, in the pain is so much that they don't know what else to do. But I yeah. agree with you. That does not make us a victim class by no. any, by oh, any stretch. Oh, God, no. we're, we're very fortunate. We've been given a lot of opportunity. There is still a very pro-military, pro-veteran sentiment you can tap into. There's still amazing organizations that want to help vets. At the end of the day, some people want help and some people don't. Phil, thanks, man. I've, been, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the time and um, uh, enjoyed getting to know you and enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more. So uh, I look forward to seeing you on the trail this year. Yeah. Carry the load. Thank you very much, Todd. Appreciate awesome, it. Man. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.